Greetings, and welcome to SLIS's Spring 2011 Colloquia, a program now in our 10th consecutive semester, brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science here at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier, and along with Dale David, our technical producer, we are offering this series as part of our school's vision to be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science. Before I introduce today's colloquium speaker, a few announcements. First, please look for new colloquia presentations on the SLIS website throughout the spring term, where you will also find an archive of our previous recorded presentations on the SLIS homepage at sliseweb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts. Details on how to access these presentations, either through RSS feeds or the iTunes store, can be found on the school's colloquia page. The SLIS colloquia can also be viewed via Blip TV, the popular video sharing website. The SLIS Blip TV channel can be accessed at sjsuslis.blip.tv. For our SLIS students, I would like to encourage you to visit a special website detailing the many social networking opportunities the school offers for you to connect virtually and otherwise with other SLIS students. It's our own SJSU SLIS social networking wiki where you'll find all your favorite networking resources, Ning, MySpace, LinkedIn, Google Groups, Flickr, Facebook, DGO, among others. The school also maintains another wiki called Cool Web 2.0 Tools, which offers a way for you to share and learn about the rapidly changing information resources you'll want to know about for classes, socializing, and a variety of other applications. While these previous announcements were intended primarily for our SLIS students, I also have a few items to share with everyone in the SLIS community. As you may know, the school maintains a robust profile at our professional association conferences and meetings. So I'd like to call your attention to the school's upcoming professional conference appearances at this spring's professional events. SLIS's reception at the Ontario Library Association, OLA, is scheduled for Thursday, February 3, 2011, from 6 to 8 o'clock p.m. at the Intercontinental Hotel in Toronto, Canada. SLIS's reception at the ACRL conference, the Association of College and Research Libraries, will be held on Thursday, March 31, 2011, from 4 o'clock to 6 p.m. at the Pyramid Club in Philadelphia. And SLIS will be back in Philadelphia hosting a luncheon reception at the SLA Conference Special Libraries Association on Monday, June 13, from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m., also at Philadelphia's Pyramid Club. SLIS's ALA reception will be hosted on Saturday, June 25, from 4 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. in New Orleans. SLIS will host a reception at SAA Conference, the Society of American Archivists, on Thursday, August 25, 2011, from 5 to 7 p.m. on the 80th floor 
of the Mid-America Club in Chicago. And in addition to our famous receptions and social events, SLIS will also host exhibits at the May 2011 Canadian Library Association in Halifax, Nova Scotia, the World Library uh, and Information Congress, and IFLA General in San Juan, Puerto Rico in August, the American Society for Information Science and Technology, ACIST, in New Orleans, Louisiana in October. Of course, you will find all the details on these and upcoming events and experiences on our school's webpage. The faculty hopes you see, uh, to see you at these professional conferences and encourages you to take the opportunity to become better acquainted with us as well as to meet up with classmates, friends, and colleagues. We hope you enjoy our spring colloquia, uh, all these presentations, and thank you for helping make the series such a success. It is with extra pleasure and delight that I introduce today's colloquia speaker, someone I've known as a professor, advisor, and friend since I was an undergrad at UC Berkeley. Dr. Roberto Otto earned his MLIS from the University of California at Berkeley in the early 1960s. Uh, he worked as an academic librarian in California and New York before earning a doctorate in higher education administration. He became a tenured faculty member and senior level university administrator at major research institutions in Maryland and in California. During his service as a librarian, he conducted primary scholarly research on developing library and information services for Latinos in the United States and published numerous books and articles advocating for equitable service to Latinos in American libraries. In 1971, he published the very first annotated bibliographic essay on Chicanos. He was one of the planners and organizers for the first Flor y Canto conference celebrating Latina and Latino writers held at the University of Southern California in 1974. And shortly thereafter, with Roberto Cabello Argandona, published a critical work, La Chicana, a comprehensive bibliography in 1975. Dr. Otto's seminal study, Developing Library Services for Americans of Hispanic Origin, which was published by Scarecrow in 1981, remains a classic text in the literature of service equity and advocacy. And I remember being inspired myself when I read his work on library service to Chicano youth in Los Angeles when I was a library school student. Um, Roberto has also published extensively in Chicano journals such as Consafos, El Grito, and Voices. Now, midway into his third career, he, uh, he calls this his retirement. Roberto is publishing fiction. His eighth novel, Murder at Via Museum, at the Via Museum, appeared last year, uh, late last year in iUniverse. For all his achievements and success and service, however, Roberto is still active in supporting libraries, maintaining his interest in developing and enhancing access to library and information sciences and studies for Latinos and other marginalized populations. He has served, for instance, on the advisory board and continues to serve on the advisory board for his Larkspur Public Library in Marin County, California. But today we have him live with us on campus here at San Jose State for his presentation entitled, New Librarians in a Rapidly Changing Technological World, Please join with me and the rest of the SLIS faculty in welcoming Dr. Roberto Otto. Saludos de California. 
Welcome from California. Ever wonder about the half-life of knowledge? Some of it, such as classic literature, is really timeless. However, with an ever-changing world that thrives on data and information, a few years at most is about what anyone can expect or predict. And in some cases, information is deliberately given a short shelf life. A good example is self-destruct information we see on commercials, on television, or here on the radio. What about technology? Well, buy a Kindle today, and in a few months, a new version appears that provides color and added applications. Of course, with the new Android system, handheld phones practically change every six to nine months to stay competitive. Yesterday's laptop computers are passe with the advent of Apple's ultralight 13-inch laptop. Ever wonder about the effect of the iPad? Its application continues to increase. A new version will be out in a couple of months. And the once powerful but bulky desktop computers are being replaced by units that are four times as powerful, have much larger LED screens, and CPUs that take up about half the space of an old one. While not exactly planned obsolescence, the half-life of technology has become an aspect of increased product innovation and design. Technology vendors have developed new marketing schemes to encourage replacements. Best Buy has a policy to buy back outdated technology as a trade-in for new models. Soon libraries may be able to recycle their tech equipment. Access to information, therefore, is changing dramatically with the advent of the Internet and new devices and search engines. While the Internet continues to function like a gigantic flea market, librarians and other information specialists continue to develop new ways to find reliable data and information. These developments in information and technology are only some of what library and information science practitioners must contend with, not just today, but in the coming days. It's important to consider other developments in our country. America is changing right before our eyes. Demographers knew this along with a few enlightened scholars, and they knew that minorities in California particularly, especially Latinos, would become the majority. The shifting demography in California and elsewhere has come as a surprise to many people, particularly policymakers. However, libraries were no strangers to changes in our society, and a few were among the most progressive institutions that accommodated new technologies and immigrant groups. Public libraries have, over the years, tinkered with their service programs to accommodate new clients and new technology. While their services are still pretty much the same as 10, 20, and even 30 years ago, they have reached out to new clients. A library director in the greater Los Angeles area answered my question about her staff and how it's working to, to help new groups such as Southeast Asians, Muslims, and Hispanics to orient themselves to the new library systems that are available. Quote, we show them what we have available and encourage them to use our systems to access the information they want, she said very proudly. When asked if her library had modified the traditional system to provide materials and services needed by these new minority groups, she replied, yes, but not as much as I'd like. We began by guessing at things they might like. When I asked her to elaborate, she said, at first we did not have reliable liaison people to communicate with community groups. It can be expensive and time-consuming to do that kind of outreach. To her credit, however, they found a way to communicate with immigrant groups and open a dialogue with them. This leads to a pair of questions. One involves how a library functions. In other words, what systems it uses that provide access to information. 
And the second is if and how a library adjusts to accommodate new technology and new clients. The first question revolves around adaptation. Few things are static in our society, especially in a state and nation where ethnic and cultural groups are part of a changing dynamic. Rather than catalog groups from a traditional perspective, such as identifying Asians as Orientals and Latinos as Hispanics, it is better to turn to leaders and scholars in these communities and ask how they self-identify. Progressive American libraries devise new access routes to information and knowledge about minority groups in America. It was a painful process, but they did it. They have developed new ways to identify not just materials, but elusive items, ephemeral materials, that target a local community and have, are of great significance to users. For example, most scholarly books about Asians once focused on their experience in their native countries. But as a result of a creative scholarship, such as the work of eminent scholar Ronald Takaki, new methodologies were used to provide balanced portraits of ethnic racial groups in America. Takaki's seminal book, A Different Mirror, A History of Multicultural America, published by Little Brown in 2008, has profoundly influenced new ways to view and understand the experience of immigrants in America. Library students must be aware of trends that identify, if not discover, the rich texture of our culture and influences that non-whites have had on its formation. They must be prepared to open a dialogue with liaison people, especially in urban areas with increasing numbers of minorities. This to open a dialogue where the library can reach out to potential new clients and they in turn can see and learn to understand and appreciate what a library can offer them. Traditional approaches have been used by many libraries to learn about minority and or immigrant groups in their service area. A predictable linear strategy is often used. First, the most recent census data for the target area are consulted to determine their representation. Then a survey is used to learn more about the targeted communities and from these results determine what follow-up may be needed. Early attempts to identify and learn about minority groups, especially in urban areas, through the use of general surveys may not be very useful for some libraries. Those surveys produce statistical data that can be analyzed and categorized to make general assumptions about the target group. However, these surveys have limitations when applied to low-income and minority groups. First, these groups usually are wary of anyone canvassing neighborhoods and asking for information about them, especially if some, if some of them may be undocumented. Second, no matter how well-constructed a general survey, it produces, at best, a snapshot. Sociologists have learned the hard way that while many minority communities have established economic, social, and cultural structures, these are seldom adequately revealed in a general survey. Librarians soon realize that many minority communities are moving targets because of the high incidence of mobility. On average, most low-income and minority people move at least once a year. And third, the validity of responses in a general survey may be imprecise. Too often the questions are not well understood. Moreover, the respondents may reply in a way to avoid problems. Because of the above limitations, librarians learn to use different methods to identify and reach out to low-income minority and immigrant groups. Consider some of the approaches used by libraries to reach out to and serve new clients. Language is often a barrier. About 40 different languages are spoken in the greater Los Angeles area. In San Jose, over 20 different languages are spoken. 
Aside from English, Chinese, and especially Spanish, which are the most widely spoken languages in California, many metropolitan areas in California have large Chinese, Filipino, Vietnamese, and Koreans. And these communities continue to adhere to their native language. For areas with large concentrations of Latinos, libraries have employed professionals and library staff to speak in Spanish to the new clients. Latinos developed an organization called Reforma within the library machinery to help recruit Latinos into library and information services and to encourage the use of new techniques to improve Latino library use. Other groups are using similar strategies to make libraries known to their communities and to make sure that the libraries are used. Now, why bother to seek out and make an effort to bring library and information services to these communities? It's usually a long-term obligation and expensive. The answer is not as easy as one might suspect. Yes, we want to empower people from different backgrounds. A critical aspect of empowerment is to provide people with the means to access and use information that will improve their lives and that will improve them economically, culturally, politically, and socially. The better informed people are, the greater the probability that they will make good decisions. There are other reasons that can be mentioned, but consider this. Our libraries, especially public libraries and those in publicly supported institutions, rely on the support of taxpayers. Educating more library clients in the community to appreciate and use libraries is advantageous for the user and for the service provider. But what is helping librarians increase their outreach to economically disadvantaged communities? Liaisons are a way to reach new library users. Many libraries have regular communication links with ministers and church people as a way to understand a particular community and open a dialogue with it. Through appropriate intermediaries, a minority or low-income immigrant community can be known and reached. A pastor, a priest, a deacon can be valuable in reaching out to the community. Most congregations will allow a library representative to make a public announcement and invite people to visit the library, especially when a speaker or a film that pertains to the community is offered. Community development agencies are also important conduits to these communities. Groups like family service agencies and economic development groups are very active in low-income and minority communities. It takes a few minutes to meet with community development personnel and ask for their assistance to talk about library services. To reach Latinos in the San Francisco Bay Area, a popular Latina Sunday morning talk show hostess focusing her attention on families was approached by a library system. In addition to her weekly radio program, this talented Latina was a trained clinical psychologist with a Ph.D. employed by a Bay Area county. She agreed to make monthly announcements to her audience about library activities and services of interest to Latinos. The results were an impressive gain in library attendance and circulation at the system's libraries, particularly for children's programs and storytelling. While many immigrants may not have the language skills to read in English, this can be an opportunity rather than a problem. Libraries with limited English-speaking clients and who read very little English, have devised various strategies to attract these clients. Because oral traditions are so important in most countries, storytelling and book talks are ideal vehicles to encourage these people to begin using a library. Moreover, circulation of music and films has become very popular in libraries. Once people realize 
they can check out music and movies for free, it introduces them to other services the library offers. The use of interpreters during story hour and author talks helps overcome any language problems that may arise. Several libraries have called on minority poets, essayists, and novelists to speak about their stories and poems. Published and unpublished minority writers who focus on ethnic themes in America are an important draw and usually attract community people. Take a moment to think about how bookstores sell some of their books. They will invite the writer for that particular book to come in and talk about not only her book, but the subject that she chose to write about. California independent booksellers have been inviting writers to talk about their published writings and new projects for quite some time. The California Writers Club is a statewide organization of published and unpublished writers that can be an important source of help for libraries. <clears throat> there are 19 chapters throughout California. Any librarian interested in locating writers to speak at a public library forum can contact a local California Writers Club chapter by going to http double slash calwriters.org. <clears throat> Identifying a writer with an interest in or a background appropriate for a particular minority group can be very useful, and it's easy to do. Sessions can be tailored that appeal to the target minority group. Many writers speak at a library without charge, and if they have written stories, poems, or books about the target minority group, it serves to highlight the writer and make her presentation even more appealing to the community. Now, this strategy also works for other client groups, especially for older citizens. And I'm talking about people who tend to retire and live in a particular area. They appreciate not just the writers coming in, but they appreciate the storytelling. I do, too. I go to them as often as I can. What about technology and libraries? <clears throat> There's much more to be said about ways to attract immigrant groups and minorities to libraries. However, our time is limited, and it's important to move on to changes in library and information services generated by new technological developments. The advent of the personal computer and electronic access to the Internet revolutionized the way people all over the world search for and retrieve information. It's possible for someone with a handheld device to employ a powerful search engine and call up a plethora of databases and sites to identify and retrieve information. Many young people have no idea what the Encyclopedia Britannica was. It simply does not in exist in their mind frame. Instead, the Internet is their way to find information for a school or for personal use. The shift in information seeking is what drove several encyclopedia companies out of business. They simply could not compete with reliable websites for information available from major universities and research centers and, of course, Wikipedia. Many students at middle and high school do most of their research for a paper or term project with a computer at home or in their school library. Others will use computers in their public library to surf the Internet and find the information they want. Clearly, technology has changed the way many, but not all, people search for information, not to mention informa uh, entertainment. But here, too, there are challenges for libraries. Much was said about the digital divide several years ago. While the average middle-class household has at least one computer, 
and more than two in households with a combined family income is over $100,000 a year, this is not the case for low-income and immigrant families. Yes, the schools, even the inner-city ones, train students in computer use. Even for low-income and immigrant students, they learn about computers and how to use them in the schools. It's almost a standard part of the curriculum these days. However, even if these groups could afford a home computer, the majority of low-income families cannot afford the monthly fees to access the Internet. Admittedly, some of them will somehow or other scrape up the money to get TV programs through cable, but going the extra to have a high-speed Internet line is just not possible. Moreover, the digital divide has closed somewhat, but, but getting online, like I said, and using the Internet still costs money and creates an imbalance in access to information. Libraries are an important source of computing power and free access to the Internet for low-income and minority communities. A visit to any inner-city library with computers and free Wi-Fi is very revealing. Librarians at these libraries are not shy about discussing the way they've convinced their respective cities and counties to support the purchase of computers and routers to access the Internet. Moreover, many of these libraries have Wi-Fi rooms and computer equipment for teenagers in addition to those for the general public. Why? Well, teenagers tend to use enormous amounts of time on a computer, and most of the progressive libraries have decided to set up a teen room for them, and it works very well. The competition for access time on the Internet is really ferocious in many, many libraries. So popular is the demand and use of computers in most libraries that there are time limitations now for most patrons. What about reference librarians? Well, reference librarians must master not only printed sources of information, which they learn about during their training and their education in library schools, they must also be adept at finding what a library client wants by using the Internet. When a reference librarian provides assistance to a patron looking for specific information, two things happen. First, the librarian has a wealth of printed information within the non-circulating reference collection at hand. And second, she is able to get online instantly and use a high-speed server to search for pertinent information. Library schools continue to instruct their students in what printed materials are helpful in finding different types of information, especially the ones that are updated regularly. But it is also essential for new librarians to know how to be selective in finding reliable information on the Internet. As I mentioned before, the Internet can be considered a giant flea market for information. However, library clients require and deserve to gain access to factual and correct information from reliable sources. If you look at any number of new films that have appeared, and even some of the older ones, you can see where people doing research are sitting in front of a computer. An example is a film called Deep Impact, which is about a, a TV reporter investigator. And when she learned about a particular issue, she was sitting in front of her terminal typing in ELE, and she finally typed in E.L.E, .E, 
and it took her to a couple of websites. And one of them was a website for the University of California at Berkeley. And from going to that website, she found out that ELE stood for Extinction Level Event. So these are the kinds of techniques and skills that librarians are developing and that they must have in order to be successful in working with their clients. As the reference librarian helps a client search for information, another important process is underway. There are two schools of thought about the role of reference librarians. The traditional model is for the librarian to find the information for the user. This saves time for both the librarian and the client. There is an assumption that the user will observe how the librarian searches for and accesses the information, and maybe by a process of observation will learn to do it. However, many patrons are in a rush or interested only in getting what they want. Learning how to be systematic in accessing knowledge is secondary to these clients. The second approach to reference service is to instruct directly or indirectly the patron in how to locate information. This modality is one that adds a teaching and learning experience to the interface between librarian and library user. I've often seen this done very effectively when a librarian deals with either a young adult or a kid who is maybe in the fourth or fifth grade. They're very patient in working with them and they teach them how to use the process in a systematic way to find information. Other services in our libraries regularly use the latter kind of service, the way in which you instruct people. Once a patron is shown how to use an online catalog, the client can produce the catalog at the library and from a remote site. While it may seem that the librarian is gradually stepping out of the interface between the client and information, the, reserves, the reverse is the case. It is beneficial for library users to become familiar with library services and access to information by using printed and digitalized sources. It is also cost-effective for the library to provide a librarian with sufficient time to work with other patients, I'm sorry, patrons. An area where technology has and continues to influence libraries is in the world of publishing. 20 years ago, there were over 40 major publishers in the United States, England, and Canada. Now there are less than nine. Books were distributed to sellers by jobbers. Large concerns that stocked hundreds of new titles for sale at discounts to booksellers and especially libraries. Now there are only three major jobbers in the United States. The book publishing business is facing major challenges from online access to books and on-demand publishing. Just recently, Borders Books declared bankruptcy. They are but the latest book retailer unable to continue the old system of selling books. We see a double helix here. First, technology and the internet have changed the way books are published. And second, the internet has changed the way books are bought and read. It's worthwhile to mention some of the challenges facing book publishers in America and elsewhere. There was a time when writers had to work exclusively with an agent to get their manuscript published regardless of whether it was fiction or nonfiction. This also applied to the publication of specialized materials like cookbooks, how-to-do-it manuals, and textbooks.
a writer fortunate enough to convince an agent to accept her manuscript, had someone to lobby for the publication of the book. Agents worked closely with the major publishers to sell the writer's manuscript. If the publisher, like Harper and Rowe, liked the manuscript, it bought it. Most people do not realize that when a major publisher buys a manuscript, it owns the story and controls everything from production, marketing, and to distribution. The author may receive a monetary advance and a small percentage of the sale, but that's it. The writer incurs no front-end costs other than the time and expense to prepare the manuscript. But for all practical purposes, once the publisher buys the manuscript, the author has little or no say in what happens to the book. This was the way of intellectual property ownership in the past. Even though the writer prepared the story, once purchased by a publishing house, control passed from the writer to the publisher, and the publisher could do whatever it wanted with that manuscript. However, technology has changed this process, and it's altering the publishing business in a way that may have seemed unimaginable 10 or 20 years ago. Consider the following. The digitalization of information has changed how knowledge is published or made available. Self-publishing, and what I will refer to as on-demand publishing, is possible because it is less expensive than the traditional way of printing books. Major publishers literally gambled on most of the books they prepared. Yes, there were some books, such as the memoirs of a famous person, a sensational book, perhaps about a murder, or a scandal, or a new novel by a recognized writer that could be counted on for sales of over 100,000 copies generated a particular process. The library market also serves as an important purchasing and distribution source and often accounted for additional sales of perhaps over 30,000 books, usually at a considerable discount. Publishers worked with major jobbers like Baker and Taylor and Yankee Book Peddler that bought hundreds and even thousands of books with the potential for becoming a bestseller. Literally thousands of printed books were located in the warehouses of jobbers in remote areas of Arizona, Nevada, and Texas, where land was cheap and where labor was very inexpensive. The books sat there waiting for demand and sales. When the stock of a printed book diminished to less than a few copies, the jobber would place another large order with a publisher like Little Brown or Macmillan. However, technology is changing this. Now a writer can go to an on-demand publisher such as Author House or iUniverse and have their manuscript reviewed for possible publication. If the editors at an on-demand publisher think a manuscript has potential, they will sell the writer a publication package. The writer maintains intellectually property rights and controls how the book is formatted and printed. However, the initial costs to produce the book are borne exclusively by the writer. On-demand publication packages can range from as low as about $400 for a run of 100 books to over $3,000 for specialized services that include content review, help in formatting the book, and a marketing plan. Editing services are an extra cost for writers. The author, therefore, takes all the risks. This is not too different from the way many independent book publishers operated before and continue to do so. Many of them were niche publishers with limited runs of books. These presses attracted writers who specialized in young adult 
and children's books and stories that dealt with specific geographical areas and historical periods. And many of these specialty presses also did memoirs. But they too are being battered by on-demand publishers. The major book publishers had a near monopoly on book publishing, especially if they had contractual arrangements with large jobbers. Book outlets like Walden House and Barnes and Noble had interesting links to libraries. But now that's changed. Now on-demand publishers have a variety of tactics to compete with the remaining book publishers. Their publication costs are less. They don't need to warehouse thousands of books, and they only produce what they can sell and what is demanded. It is not surprising that even established writers are shying away from major publishing houses and using on-demand publishers to sell their books. So what does this mean for libraries and librarians? Basically, it's cheaper for libraries to purchase books from on-demand publishers, especially if they go through an established jobber, like the Ingram Book Group. Many of the top-rated on-demand publishers have developed buyback arrangements with jobbers like those for major publishers. So if there's a book signing approach and not all the books are sold, they can go back to the publisher at no cost to the writer. Because on-demand publishers can tailor a run of books to the needs of a jobber, from small to large orders, they do not have to warehouse thousands of titles. And they can print books faster than traditional publishers. Once the information is digitalized, you can see these enormous presses just rolling out the number of copies that are required. Let me give you an example. Not too long ago, I had to make a speaking engagement at a library in Denver. And they told me, bring about 25 of your most recent books. All I did was call the publisher, and 25 copies were printed and made available to the library. And the library and I split the proceeds. For librarians interested in selecting new books for a library, self-publishing was first perceived as a very risky venture. There were, after all, established ways in which librarians, short of reading every new title, made decisions about purchasing a book. There are book selection sections in the professional literature and special publications devoted to book reviews and critiques. Librarians pay particular attention to book sections that appear in major newspapers, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times, to mention but a few. These and other sources of reviews such as the old Virginia Kirkus Review of Books, were essential guides for library book selectors. However, books self-published were seldom, if ever, mentioned in the traditional book review guides until recently. Now, a version of the Virginia Kirkus Review is devoted exclusively to books available from on-demand publishers. Amazon.com, the elephant in the room, has developed the Clarion Review of Books, that includes on-demand published books, e-books, especially e-books that they sell. Even professional library literature is beginning to adapt to the emergence of an on-demand publishing industry. It is only a matter of time before new websites will be available devoted exclusively to on-demand book reviews. In other words, the e-book is here. Let me give you an example of how the e-book really is here. Most major um, book outlets and most independent booksellers literally blanch when you tell them 
can I buy, may I buy an ebook through you? They faint. Why? Because they think that they can't make any money doing that. They want to sell either a paper-bound or a hard-bound copy of the book. But that's no longer the case. There are very progressive booksellers in California and elsewhere who now are able to sell you ebooks, with the exception of ebooks that are only for Kindle. And that's because Amazon.com uh, wants to have a monopoly. Technology has also spawned new ways to buy and read books. The advent of electronic books is a major challenge for traditional publishers. And if they don't wise up to it, they're going to go out of business, as so many others have done. Amazon.com is now the major book vendor, and its e-book sales are impressive. Amazon not only sells more books online than any other jobber or book dealer, it has also captured the lion's share of the e-book market. The Kindle, Amazon's electronic book reader, is the most popular one on the market at the moment, but it may not maintain that uh, pinnacle. Rapid advancements in e-book readers are already underway that will challenge Kindle, the Nook, and others like them. Reading books on an electronic tablet is appealing to an increasing number of readers, and many of them are younger. Once the initial outlay for an electronic reader is made, it's considerably less expensive to read an e-book than to purchase either the hardbound or softbound version. I was talking to a gentleman on an airplane not too long ago who had a Nook and was using it, and I said, how do you like it? He says, well, it's not a substitute for the book, he said. However, I travel so often, I don't want to have to carry six or seven books with me. All he had to do was refer to the Nook. And he said, besides, this has other applications, and it's in color. Several libraries have seen the changes in the book's format and are establishing services to lend e-books to library patrons. A few of them are doing it already. The technology to do this is available, and librarians who have experimented with lending ebooks are extremely supportive of this process. The technology is not too different from the way Netflix streams movies to everything from new TVs and DVD players to handheld devices. As I said at the beginning of my talk, technological advances that affect libraries are with us and they're changing rapidly to respond to new services that library clients want. Perhaps one of the greatest weaknesses that most public libraries have at the moment is not necessarily the technology, but space. What most people are requesting is space to meet, space to hear book talks, space where young adults can get together and talk about things, and space for sp storytelling. This is the one area where bricks and mortar has yet to be challenged. So this is a very exciting time to enter the library and information science profession. Our nation is changing dramatically as whites in our population age and immigrants and minorities increase in numbers and as members of the workforce. In many states like New York, Pennsylvania, Florida, Texas, and California, older white populations, mainly retired, must depend on younger minority workers for the health and other care services they require, and taxes, and other contributions that support Social Security 
and important segments of the stock market. So, be prepared to adapt to new technologies and developments and learn to find creative ways to enhance and expand library services with them. You mentioned that space was the, the last sort of bastion of the, you know, the need for the physical building, and of course it's very important. But I'm also beginning to see um, that beginning to be eroded a little bit as well, because you have virtual book clubs now, and they're often targeted to senior citizens, or they're targeted even to minority groups, and indeed in my, I teach web programming, and indeed in my class I have them build a virtual branch, and they build blogs, and they develop, they have to pick a community group, and they target it there. So, not soon, I, I think, but do you see that that may be even beginning to decline a little bit as well as, as things are changing for libraries? And, and thank you. Yes. Um, the technology to do what you're talking about, the interactive kind of uh, public speaking, uh, teleconferencing as, as we called it before, is making it possible for people to hear a lecture, to see a travel film, to interact with each other this way. But there are a couple of things that we have to bear in mind. One, low-income groups are, are very tight-knit. They're, they're very close-knit. Uh, and most of them don't have the wherewithal to be able to take all of this on, over the Internet or through uh, an electronic device. The other thing is, is they like to maintain that integrity by sitting together. Uh, they're naturally fearful. They're immigrants. This is a new country. This is a new experience for them. So they need a place where they can feel comfortable. And a library that provides space for them to do this will, will handle it. The other thing is for older folks. Um, for those that are housebound, it's a wonderful opportunity to teleconference or to, to telemeeting. However, for many of them, especially when the weather is very bad, uh, they like to go out of the house. And they enjoy going to the mall because it's air-conditioned and heated so that during the summer and the winter, they have a, an interesting place to go. But it's also a face place. It's where they recognize their friends and they can share with them immediately. Uh, there's also the opportunity for them to be interactive with their colleagues in a way that involves closeness. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen two Muslim men talking with each other. It's, it's intriguing. They will get right up in each other's face. And it's not that they're arguing with each other, but that is a form of friendship for them. And you cannot do that through technology. So when you begin to look at these emerging communities, and let me say that the Muslims in the United States now outnumber the Jewish community. So that here you will see in, in various parts of a state, these groups where men are talking with each other face-to-face, so close that you say to yourself, aren't they violating their personal space? No because those are their traditions. And that plays out very well in a library where they're in a room and they're talking with each other. It sounds like a madhouse, but it really is enjoyable for those people. So there's got to be a balance here. Yes, we're going to need more space. The other thing is, with regard to kids, is their attention span tends to be very limited. But when you have them in a closed setting where they're being monitored and where they actually can touch whatever it is that the speaker is using, like props, then the attention is wrapped. That's difficult to do electronically. You talked, uh, you talked some about how 
to attract minority and immigrant groups to libraries. But um, here we are in the School of Library and Information Science. And I was, we do a number of things to attract um, a variety, diverse groups of people to our school. But I was wondering what your thoughts were about what additional uh, things might be done to both attract uh, a more diverse set of people to the school as well as make them feel comfortable throughout the program, feel supported and, and uh, engaged throughout as well. You have to recruit, and you have to recruit in a way that tunes the attention of students at a very formative point in their careers. And that means catching them when they're going to high school and maybe even middle school. Uh, we don't often think of librarians as uh, guardians of an enormous power source. And that power source is access and control of information. And that's what our country has become. Uh, we are a leader because we have power through information and we control it. When kids in uh, middle school or in a high school learn about the technological advances and how librarians are manipulating them, it begins to change them. Uh, many of them are socially conscious. They're, they're aware, even at that age, when they're a young adult or when they're a teenager, that they can have power and that they can have a career that is extremely exciting. Um, the other thing that we have not done is, is talk with school counselors and with school educators so that they're aware of what it is that our profession is like. Uh, most of them tend to only see a library from an external perspective, maybe the school library, which they seldom use, or their public library, which occasionally they use. But you have to reinforce it by sending teams of people regularly to a school and talking to them about what are the advantages of being a librarian. Uh, is it a wonderful profession that gives you an opportunity to learn all of your life? Does it have mobility? Uh, is there a career potential within it? And are libraries just public libraries, or are they school libraries, or are they academic libraries, or are they specialized libraries? What is this vast field of library and information science that exists? Now, the other thing is, in talking to community groups, especially low-income community groups, we need intermediaries. It is difficult for someone to go into a black community who is, say, Caucasian, and try to convince them that they should become a librarian. Um, in the past, it worked because individuals had that charisma that was able to reach out to these minority kids. But now we need intermediaries. And that's where, like I said, ministers, um, talk show hosts. Uh, I was at a meeting not too long ago in Richmond, California, where a minister and a newscaster, a radio newscaster, and a black anchor woman were talking to the kids about different careers and careers that were manageable and that they would really enjoy. At the top of the list, of course, was becoming a doctor or a lawyer. And then below that, other things, including getting a master's in business. But I stood up and I said, what about being a librarian? And they looked at me like I was from Mars. But after about 10 minutes, they began to say, yeah, that's right, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, he's got a point there. That's what we need to do. We need to convince these intermediaries, as I mentioned before, that becoming a librarian is very important, 
It is a career that can be very rewarding, very satisfying. We've done a little bit of it at the national level. And you see play cards and you see films that have been produced, you see uh, commercials that have been produced. But we have to get into what I call the down and gritty. We have to go where most of these kids live. And we have to give them a challenge. The other thing is that librarians have an international uh, approach also. It's possible for kids um, to become excited about not just getting a library degree, but perhaps joining the Peace Corps and using that as a mechanism to tie together the things that they want to do if they're really critically conscious and want to help societal gains. So we have yet to devise the perfect strategy, but we need to keep experimenting, and we need to keep talking with folks who regularly discuss careers. Uh, when I was the uh, vice chancellor for uh, undergraduate affairs at Berkeley, I went to the Career Planning and Placement Center and even though Berkeley had a library school at the time, there was not a stitch of literature in that career planning placement center about libraries and becoming a librarian. And that all changed. I said, I want regular talks from people in the library school and, and the university libraries about this, especially the undergraduate librarians. So you have to have somebody who makes that outreach. You have to have someone who, like I say, burning with the desire to promote the career of being a librarian. Rather unusual for, for our talks was sent to me prior by a, uh, a magistrate in Kern County, uh, the Honorable Judge Michael Bush, who's preparing a talk, saw your presentation being promoted on the website, and, and asks, um, he's going to be giving a talk uh, called uh, Traditional Libraries, Are They Still of Value in This Technological Age? And he's looking for tips from you. Um, specifically to respond to his uh, speech preparation. Visit a, a new library, and I'll give an example. The Livermore Public Library is an example of a new library that has within it a variety of services. It even has a cafeteria, or a cafe as they call it. On any day that you visit that library, it's just booming. Uh, at one particular time of the day, it's usually older people. At another time, it's business people who are using the collection for business purposes. At other times, it's films that are being shown to folks interested in travelogues and interested in traveling. And at other times, you see these kids coming in by the droves, and they're being bussed in by the schools for the storytelling. Moreover, they don't have sufficient computers. Why? Because the demand continues to accelerate. The demand for access to the internet at the public library is an enormously popular service. So even in a small county, even in a remote county, even in a sub suburban or even a rural area, libraries have become essential parts of the community. They become a place where access to the internet, where um, in the near future access to ebooks will be possible. And beyond that, it is a place where the, the service providers will tell you, use me. I'm here for you to use me. Um, that's not usually the case in most social service agencies. 
And there's almost a sign there that says, don't bother me. But that's not the case in libraries. So it's become an institution. It's changing. It's morphing into something that's able to ingest the new technology and use it to enhance services to individuals and communities that never would have expected it. Any connections you may see between ebooks and the impacts they may have on library school students themselves? Yes. The ebook is not the end. There are other forms of accelerated information digestion that psychologists will talk to you about. We are at a point of, of development now. We're studying the way the mind works that we can almost assure that new students will be able to ingest information and knowledge not just from the printed page, but from graphic images. Um, it's not unusual. We, we've seen it before. In fact, uh, the Air Force teaches individuals by the use of this graphic technology so that there's little need to look for certain things in a printed format. So the ebook is but what I call a way station in the way that libraries will continue to develop in a linear way uh, the delivery of information to people. Now, some kinds of information, like the novel, um, where you're storytelling, or the textbook where you have uh, specific kinds of learning experiences that have to be done in a sequence, it'll be harder to do that. But we're at a point where we're learning so much about the way the mind functions and how it can learn. So the ebook, I think, has opened the door for many librarians. It's showing them that we don't need these huge collections of books. We don't need these large buildings. Um, in fact, a system, a county library system now has bought less of the hardbound books than the e-books that are going to make available to the general public. So it's going to be a challenge for librarians, and it's also going to be an opportunity for them to devise new ways of interfacing the client and the knowledge.